Hello, 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 beautiful people. This week, we are doing an in-depth look at Malcolm Miller, his early life, his college career, and basically how exactly he has reached his current position in the NBA. Of course, this is part of a recurring series for us. So this season, we've looked at Chris Boucher and Terrence Davis. And it's all about understanding not just what kind of players we have on this Raptors team, but also what kind of histories and personalities they have as well. So here we're going to start with the early life of Malcolm Miller. And if you guys have listened to prior episodes, especially with Chris and Terence, it's really a story of hardship and poverty and hustle for those guys to reach the position that they reached. And it's almost a given with NBA talent. Um, all the stories you hear from your LeBrons, your Jimmy Butlers, are those men and individuals who've somewhat been shaped by all the difficulties that they faced and perhaps maybe a driving force as to why they've actually become successful today. However, with Malcolm Miller, I scoured the internet, I was on Reddit threads, YouTube comment sections, and it was very, very difficult for me to find any useful information. Although I do not claim to be a journalist, of course that title goes to Kamel, I still feel like I did a fairly thorough job, and the only two nuggets of information that I could find was that A, he's actually the nephew of Hall of Famer and NBA great Reggie Miller, and the other piece of information is that he grew up in Maryland. And so perhaps we could say that he had a maybe normal and stable upbringing. And for that, I guess we can look at that in one of two ways. So we can argue that, yes, this stability is actually what helped launch his success. Um, you know, it provided him with that comfort and that security to know that he could go out there and perform on the basketball court. Or perhaps it's what made him more soft and less hungry to achieve success. However you approach this question really depends on your outlook on life. So are you of the belief that hardship and suffering are the necessary ingredients to build the character and resilience of a person... Or do you rather think that it's really love and support that allows a person to flourish? Now, before I get too philosophical, I'm going to just move on to Malcolm Miller's basketball career. And when we jump into Miller's high school career, he attended Gaithersburg High School in his native Maryland, where he had fairly decent stats in his senior season, which led him to being recognised as one of the top 500 seniors by Hoopscoop, which isn't uh, terrible, but it wasn't like he was on the radars of you know most NBA scouts. So he still had a long way to go when it came to uh, eventually being drafted by an NBA franchise. As a result of the success, Malcolm Miller ended up signing to the Holy Cross Crusaders of the Patriot League. And when we look at Malcolm's college career, the most discernible aspect of it is the fact that we see steady progression all throughout his four years. So although he didn't actually start in his first year and he only ended up 
averaging nine minutes a game with uh, two and a half points per game. It's the fact that season by season, we saw really a progression of about three to four points a game. He became the starter in his second season. And by his senior season, he had actually had some very, very respectable stats. He had 15 points a game. He had 1.6 blocks a game, 1.3 steals a game. And um, he was near the top of the leaderboards for um, the Patriots' all-time records in most statistical categories, aside from assisting, which we'll come to later. It's not one of his strengths. And this is where I believe NBA scouting teams and NBA franchises are flawed, because it's not like Malcolm was playing in a completely uncompetitive league. It was still Division One basketball. He still played against um, some fairly decent competition. And so um, the fact that, you know, he was one of the uh, best players on that team and he was put up such solid statistics across the board. You know, he's a 3 and D player who could... Um, he wasn't a lights-out shooter, but he was, he was a very competent shooter. Um, an extremely, extremely talented defender, which Kamel will talk about later. So um, here I think scouts might need some more flexibility in uh, scouting some talent who don't go to those major schools that uh, perform year in, year out in the NCAA, like your Villanovas or your Kansases. So Malcolm Miller played four seasons at the Holy Cross Crusaders in the Patriot League. And just to give a bit of a background on the Patriot League, uh, for those people who don't know what it is, um, it's essentially like tier two of the top universities in the US. So you've kind of got the Ivy League, which are of course all located in uh, the Northeast US. And you also have the Patriot League located in the same area. And they're kind of just like a tier below so um, these guys aren't as obsessive about um, sports. They only introduced uh, sports scholarships quite recently. However, uh, when it comes to the Holy Cross Crusaders, they have a little bit more pedigree, although they haven't reached the second round of the NCAA since 1952-1953. Uh, they were actually NCAA champions in 1946-1947 and famously it was Bob Cousy who actually played for the college during that period. And so although the Patriot League is maybe doesn't have quite the respect that other leagues do when it comes to NCAA Division One basketball, out of a fairly bad bunch, the Holy Cross Crusaders probably have the uh, best history and pedigree as a basketball programme. Now, Malcolm Miller would actually end up playing 47 games with Boston's G League affiliate known as the Maine Red Claws, where he actually put up some very admirable stats with 13 points, 5 rebounds and 2 assists a game. And uh, those stats aside, the most bizarre uh, aspect of his G League account was the fact that the very following season, the Maine Red Claws actually ended up signing another Malcolm Miller who's no relation to this one but when looking at his career history I thought I was going insane for a second because I thought this does sound like the same Malcolm Miller he's the same age however he seems here to have gone to a different college and for about 15 minutes I I thought maybe this was the same person until I realized it's 
it was oddly his doppelganger. Um, just one of those bizarre coincidences. It's got nothing to do with anything with the episode, but hey-ho. Tangents aside, after this successful season, Miller would decide to go to the EuroLeague and join Alba Berlin, where, again, he had a solid season, but he was out for two months after fracturing his wrists. So um, some of his bad luck, which he would face later on in his career as well, was starting to kick in at this point. But despite this injury, he actually ended up in the season following. So at the start of the 2017 season, he would be signed as the first two-way player for the Toronto Raptors. And at this point, I'm going to wrap up my side of the story and Kamel will take over and describe Miller's Raptors career up till this point. So after unconventionally fighting his way to the NBA, Malcolm Miller finally signed a two-way deal at the age of 24. Unfortunately, in his first practice after the deal, he suffered a serious ankle sprain that would keep him out for pretty much the whole season and cost him some valuable time in the Raptors 905 getup. And of course that sort of structure which has you know provided the likes of Fred Van Vliet is a very very useful setup for a player like Miller who was at the time as Varal explained earlier just a bit rough around the edges. So there's no worries the uh, the front office could see Malcolm still had talent and in fact he was very close to signing a multi-year professional deal with the Raptors following that 2017-2018 season in which he appeared 15 times for Toronto and actually started four games. So however he suffered a serious shoulder injury while playing in summer league and so that took that sort of multi-year deal off the table and he was back to his year-to-year contracts with the Raptors. It's not a great situation for a player to be in because, you know, an injury can cost you. Um, Just a run of bad form can, you know, make the front office, make the coach lose all trust in you. So it was a tough time for Malcolm Miller. Firstly, let's look at his statistics during his short three-year tenure with the Raptors. During his 15 games in the 2017-2018 season, He won all 15. He started four mainly due to injuries and partly down to the fact that the Raptors, towards sort of March, April time, had pretty much wrapped up which seed they would be in. So he started the games. He never played more than 15 minutes, really. There was one indication. There was one game uh, at Indiana where he played 22. And in fact, that was really the game which showed why the Raptors have invested so much in Malcolm Miller so far. Now, guarding Victor Oladipo, especially pre-injury, was no easy feat whatsoever. For a rookie who had, as we said, pretty much just busted his ankle the season before, to hold Oladipo to a quiet night to play to a plus four, plus minus himself, is an absolutely excellent result on the stat sheet and to be honest on the day he really passed the eye test as a 3 and D sort of player it's the player that you know 
when you see the likes of Demari Carroll, Patrick Patterson, the sort of flops in Toronto. It's the kind of player that the Raptors needed in depth. It's a very useful bench piece. It was perhaps then looking onwards and upwards towards a 2018-19 season where, due to the injuries to OG Ananubi and Norman Powell's ongoing sort of patchy fitness, there might have been a chance for Malcolm to fit in. But as we said, it's so unfortunate uh, that he had shoulder issues pretty much as soon as the season started. He only ended up appearing in 10 games, didn't start in one, and at most played just 12 minutes. And at the end of the season, it really presented quite a tough situation for Malcolm. What was he going to do? What his, was his NBA career at a crossroads? You ask his teammate Fred Van Vliet, this is what he told The Athletic. He's had some chances. I wouldn't say it's a lot. I think in those chances, he just hasn't played exceptionally. He's done good and, you know, that's probably not good enough to increase the opportunity as much as somebody would like. It's tough. I know. think that he's definitely an NBA player and he's on a really good team and he's a little older and he's a 3 and D guy. As unfair as it is, you check in, you've got to make them shots. You've got to make them. And if you don't, what good is a shooter that is not 100%? Now, Fred knows a little thing or two about breaking into the team and shooting himself out of a hole, so I'm going to take his word as literal gospel. However, the fact remains that time might just be running out for Malcolm Miller. With Kawhi's departure after he won a title, he might have thought maybe the Raptors are going to rebuild, maybe they're going to offload some of their more senior, some of their better players, which would give Malcolm a decent chance and decent minutes in a rebuilding team. However, it's not the case. The Raptors have, of course, remained second seed in the East throughout the season and are on their way to making another serious title challenge. That, of course, means for Malcolm, while his team is doing well, he has failed to really make an impact on the floor. He's only appeared in 25 games this season. This sounds like a lot, but the most minutes he's played is 16 against Dallas. Um, and really, he's only started one. He just started the one game at Portland uh, back in November, and he only played seven minutes that game, didn't score a single point. So, again, we'll come back. Is Malcolm's career at a crossroads? I mean, the evidence suggests not. The evidence suggests that he there is still a lot of confidence from the front office in him. I mean, they punted the choice to roster a third point guard this season in order to adopt Miller into the Raptors' senior squad. At the same time, what does this mean? It means that if the Raptors think they need a bit more depth to go a step further next season... Miller might in fact become the easy player to cut. Well, this is what he says himself. You might be checking a little extra, but at the same time, it's something that's out of your control. So you do the things that got you here and the things that will continue to put you on teams and be a good teammate and be an NBA player. You check over your shoulder, maybe twice instead of once, but you understand it's the business of the game. And when whatever opportunity arises for you, whether it was a buyout, trade, wave, whatever you know, you're ready for it. 
it's clear that Malcolm is simply waiting for his opportunities. When he gets them, whether it be marking Oladipo for a whole game and putting in a stellar performance on the defensive end, or just earlier this season, his only start, of course, uh, sorry, his when he played the most minutes against Dallas, that was, of course, when the Raptors' second and, and third string engineered one of the biggest comebacks in NBA history, and of course the biggest comeback in franchise history. He showed his stuff there, but he's still not getting the chance just due to the depth of talent above him. It, we don't know what exactly Malcolm needs to do. Right now, he's competing with the likes of Boucher, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, and surprisingly for some fans, Patrick McCaw. He's almost got to become the best of the end of the Raptors bench and work his way up. Because otherwise, in this team, with what they're going for, with the quality ahead of him, he's never, unfortunately, going to really get a look. What is up, Balling in the Six listeners? This has been a quick four-day turnaround from ourselves since the last podcast. As of course, we want to keep up to date with this frantic and hectic schedule in the NBA currently, leading up to the playoffs, which are going to start this weekend. And, and fortunately, this week, we're going to be without our main host, Kamel. And it will be led by yours truly, the uh, assistant uh, host, let's call myself. And uh, without further ado, let's just jump into these Raptors games. Because the Raptors, since our last podcast, participated in three of these NBA regular season bubble games. And it was, let's say, uh, a mixed bag, despite how well the last two games went. We're going to start off with the blowout. That was the Celtics game. If we are to purely look at the final score, 122 to 100 doesn't actually seem like uh, a massive blowout. It doesn't seem like the kind of result that the Raptors can't bounce back from. However, it is actually quite deceptive because the Raptors were down by 40 points at one stage in this game. And it was only due to the efforts of the bench in the fourth quarter that they were actually able to pull the score back and make it look more respectable than it was. Because this game was a spanking, plain and simple it revealed to me a flaw in this team that I think has kind of consisted for quite a while, but has usually been papered over uh, by another aspect of the Raptors game. And despite the ambiguous description I just gave, I'll explain what I mean by this. The starting five of this Raptors team are all liable to have uh, subpar games. Uh, they've all at some stage in their career been known as somewhat streaky players, uh, even some of the bench players. But if we look at the starting five, um, Lowry at earlier periods, especially during his playoff career, he would have very substandard games. Same with Fred last year. He, um, you know, he had that rather horrific stretch of shooting. Um, Mark Gasol doesn't really have uh, many bad games, but... There are games that, on the offensive end, he doesn't really have much of an impact when it comes to scoring the ball. Um, and the same for Pascal Siakam as well. As a player who's trying to fill this superstar role, sometimes he, um, because he's not still quite accustomed to it, he does have these substandard games. And 
on this particular night, it so happened to be a game where not a single one of the starters stepped up and they were thoroughly bashed around by the starting five of the Celtics who, bar Hayward, who ended up with nine points but still shot the ball efficiently, all scored in double digits. And uh, just watching this game, I mean, it seemed like they were completely... Uh, out of ideas, uh, nobody really wanted to c- take control of of the offense and to run it. And um, what has been a saving grace for this team is not only being their bench, but the fact that their defense has stepped up. Because even if you look at these bubble games, there have been games where the Raptors uh, haven't put up uh, a gargantuan number of points, but every single time their defense managed to step up and stop the opposition. However, in this game, it was not the case with Boston shooting 49% from the floor. Although the Raptors did limit them to 35% from three, uh, which is below their uh, normal average uh, for the Celtics. But, um, you know, nonetheless, uh, in a lot of these games in the bubble, the Raptors have looked like the best defensive team in the NBA, um, frequently limiting opposing teams to less than even 40% from the field and sometimes less than 30% from free. So this was just a combination of uh, their defense not being as elite as it has been, uh, not just, again, in the bubble, but actually the whole regular season. And their their starters also not showing up offensively, which is why uh, with this mixture, you ended up getting the blowout that you did. However, I also don't think that it's uh, a time to panic. The Raptors haven't looked this poor, really, at any stage of this bubble. And if you want them to have this kind of blip, I want to call it, at any stage, you want them to have it now, especially against this Boston team that uh, at the moment looks like uh, are going to be the Raptors' second-round opponents in the playoffs. You'd rather have uh, this kind of disaster in the regular season as opposed to when that second round begins. And so I don't think the Raptors will be totally disheartened but it should be a nice little warning uh, bell for them just to show them that you know uh, despite how well that they've been playing um, there's still room for improvement for this team. We'll move on quickly to the next game against the Grizzlies which was honestly a game that was completely all over the place. The Grizzlies turned the ball over 22 times and somehow the Raptors bested this with 25 turnovers. Uh, It was a scrappy affair and although the Raptors did, you know, uh, shoot the ball fairly well, uh, they almost shot it for 50% from the field, 38% from the three. If you actually watched the game, it was honestly, so much of it was off the back of Pascal who... Uh, ended up scoring 26 points, uh, shot 9 of 16 from the field and 4 of 9 from 3. If Pascal wasn't showing up on the offensive end, I think this game would have and frankly should have been a lot closer than it was. And this was against a Grizzlies team that's still adjusting to the loss of Jaron Jackson with uh, Anthony Tolliver now moving to the 4 or to the starting 4 position. And so... I mean, Raptors fan look, fans looking at this game would have expected, you know, maybe a 20, 25, 30 point blowout. And so 
this game was a lot closer than it should have been. And it again, it was due to really the Toronto defence that they were able to pull away with this victory. And they looked far from convincing all game long. Now we come to the bright spot of the last few games for Toronto, which was, of course, the game against the Bucks yesterday, where Raptors did come out on top. And although the starters uh, of both teams, you know, had a rest, whether this be sitting out the game entirely or uh, playing reduced minutes, this game was still an, a game of importance, in my opinion, because what it showed was that this Raptors depth and bench that we've been praising and heralding all season long will hopefully pull this team through when they, again, in my opinion, match up with the Bucks in the conference finals. Some of the highest performing players for this Raptors team during this game were actually players who have played very limited minutes in this bubble. And in particular, Matt Thomas has been a player that Kamel has been clamouring for uh, all this period for him to be uh, getting some more extended minutes. And guess who was the minutes leader in this game? It was Matt Thomas himself playing 37 minutes. He ended up with 22 points, 4 of 8 from three point, uh, from the three-point line. And when you looked at his performance, uh, what was eye-catching for me it's not the fact that he shot the ball well, because we've always said he's an excellent shooter. But this 26-year-old rookie, who's not exactly blessed with athleticism, was taking on every single defensive matchup that came his way. There was one particular defensive position where he, I believe, ended up switching on to three different Milwaukee players. And he was trying to defend Robin Lopez in the post and... He was doing it with a defensive ferocity and intensity that was that was inspiring. I'm sure the sure the rest of his teammates saw this because again he's not blessed with the physical tools as much as his teammates are, but mentally he was just playing with again such a high tempo that it was just great to see. And uh, I would say this for the rest of this you know uh, was matched and mirrored by the rest of the team. Of course, Chris Boucher was the uh, leading scorer in this game with 25 points. And uh, we've spoken about how terrific his defence was uh, when he played during the regular season. And it showed in this game with two steals and two blocks as well. Norm Powell as well ended up with 21 points. He was 4-5 from the three-point line. Uh, you also had two steals and three blocks. So you had an all-around spectacular performance but from Norm Powell as well. And that's why this game was so special to see because it was completely carried by uh, role players for this team. Again, Terence Davis also stepped up and had a great game. Um, and when you look at it from the Milwaukee side, Milwaukee essentially played everyone bar Yanis in this game. And so the fact that they... I would argue they got blown out because, again, they brought things back in the fourth quarter a bit. But the momentum was with the Raptors uh, through three quarters of this game. And this team, without Yanis, not just on the offensive end, but also the defensive end, just doesn't look the same. 
This team shot 39% from the field and 32% from three. A team that has been shooting tremendously from the three-point line all season long. And what does this say? It shows that this team doesn't generate the same type of shots without Giannis in the team. Although they were shooting three-pointers, a lot of them were contested and very difficult three-pointers. And most of their three-pointers are generated from... Uh, Yanis driving to the lane and kicking out to a wide open shooter and they just didn't have those same types of shots and understandably as a result of this they shot the ball far more poorly than they usually would do and so hopefully we see this kind of trend repeating in the playoffs whenever Yanis is not on the court the opposition team and in particular the Raptors should look at this as a major opportunity to inflict damage on the Bucks. Now, when we take a dive into the rest of the NBA, one team we must talk about is the Phoenix Suns because we've discussed them to some extent in this Western Conference playoff picture, but we haven't really done a fully-fledged analysis. So we need to discuss this team, especially off the back of their six-game win streak and the fact that they are still the only undefeated team in this bubble. And if you look at their fixtures, it's by no means been a walk in the park. They had two close victories over the Dallas Mavericks and Clippers, uh, which were both um, 117 to 115. They've beaten the OKC Thunder, the Pacers and Miami. The only team that can be considered an easy game was their first win against the Wizards. What's even more spectacular about this run of theirs is outside of those two games that I just mentioned, all the other games were essentially blowouts, uh, for the most part by 10 points or more. And that's outside the Miami Heat game, whereby Miami, um, although it was a fairly close game, uh, you could tell that the Suns were actually a cut above. But this was also due in part to uh, Miami Heat having a lot of injuries for that game as well. But that aside, the Suns have looked spectacular. And why has that been the case? Well, uh, Devin Booker has been part of the media narrative. Oh, it's just Devin Booker carrying the team on his back. Yes, that is a big part of it. Devin uh, Booker, during that stretch, had some unbelievable games. Uh, he's averaging over 25 points a game. He's just He's looked unbelievable. But... It's about the fact that the rest of those players have stepped up when you're comparing them to their regular season averages. Ricky Rubio is shooting 40% from free. And although he's not going to maintain that over a large stretch of games, nonetheless, he's still been shooting better from the three-point line at 35% than he has been in uh, other seasons. So he's really stepped up his game during this bubble. Who else? You've got Cam Johnson, who's had to play some starting minutes. He's... Um, I believe he's stepped up his points per game by about three or four points. Same can be said for Macau Bridges as well. So this Suns team, as a team, have all stepped up. It hasn't just been Booker. When you look at this team, there is an emphasis on team ball as well. Although Devin Booker is taking a lot of isolation shots as well. Um, they're also using Aiton very effectively within the offense. Um, getting the ball down to him in the post, he's um, been averaging a double-double. He's been averaging 20 and 10 in the bubble, so he's been dominant down there. But even if he's not getting points in the paint, 
he's been very effective at passing the ball to the perimeter as well. And to cap off how impressive this run by the Suns has been, they've had two of their starts as well. One of uh, one of their starters and one of their sixth men, uh, which is Aaron Baines, who've been injured during the entire bubble. And so if you bring back Kelly Oubre and Aaron Baines into the fold, if, and this is a big if, if this team actually makes the eighth seed, they could actually, in my opinion, cause a problem for the Lakers. That doesn't mean that, you know, I still don't have the Lakers winning, but I don't think uh, we'll be getting any brooms out. It's not Quidditch time. I think it would be like maybe a 4-1 or 4-2 win. Um, again, the Suns of Synergy has just been on a level level. So moving past the Suns, we'll look at some of the other teams that are fighting for that eighth seed. So firstly, the Memphis Grizzlies, who uh, managed to actually register their first win of the bubble. But that is with a giant asterisk because the they did it so against the OKC and the OKC were missing four of their top five scorers in that game. And um, the fact that, you know, you had Dort uh, being one of their main scorers in that game, um, although he did shoot the three ball very effectively in that game, uh, really tells you how short-handed this OKC team was. And when you look at the Grizzlies, their last two games are against the Celtics and the Bucks. And they are a game in front of the Phoenix Suns um, and the Spurs, and they're half a game in front of the Portland Trailblazers. And how they do and whether they make that eighth seed or that ninth seed really depends on what kind of lineups the Celtics and Bucks will have. Because I'm not so sure that the Celtics will play their best team. Because although they did so, for example, uh, against the Raptors, um, they did so in their latest game as well, the Celtics have been playing their, their, their best team against other very, very good teams. But if they... They might choose not to do so against a team like the Suns because, you know, they're not worried about playing them in the NBA Finals. So it's not an important matchup for them. And of course, the Celtics have secured the third seed and they have no possibility of moving up to the second team seed. So um, I do see them against a Memphis Grizzlies team, a team who are, they are unlikely to play in the NBA Finals. I do see them resting... Uh, you know, the likes of Jason Tatum, the likes of Jalen Brown, who've played heavier minutes during the bubble, and, you know, playing them maybe around 20 minutes in their remaining games. Um, And so, if that is the case, the Grizzlies definitely have a chance against the Celtics, and indeed, the Celtics, oh, sorry, the Grizzlies also have a chance against a uh, Yanis-less Bucks team as well, which would be their final game. As we saw um, in the Raptors Bucks game, that the Bucks do look vulnerable when Yanis is not uh, playing at all in the game. However, with all this being said, I do actually see the Grizzlies losing both of these games, and so I think that they may even slip out of the ninth seed and end up as the tenth seed. We'll then move on to the Portland Trailblazers, who, of course, um, when you just look at the results, although they've been up and down, this Trailblazers team has been extremely competitive during this whole uh, bubble. Yusuf Nurkic has looked great on his comeback. He's slowly finding his feet and the team is just playing with uh, a lot more chemistry uh, than they were uh, pre-bubble. Uh, it's not just 
they're not just completely relying on McCollum and Lillard to put up points for the team. And, um, you know, this is seen in their results. In their last four games, uh, they beat the Rockets, they beat the Nuggets, they beat the 76ers with their only loss coming against that Clippers team. And I have to bring up this Clippers game and that beef between Dane Dollar and PG3 after the game. This Clippers team is the most unlikable set of characters. My One of my personal favourite players, well, my favourite player, in fact, is... Marcus Smart. And although Marcus Smart, you know, he has a reputation for flopping, he can also get on the nerves of the opposition, I believe Marcus plays hard and goes at 100% every night. Where the distinction with Patrick Beverly is, is that Marcus Smart does all of his talking on the court. You see the fire and the intensity that he gives through his actions, not through, you know, his mouth, through his words. And that's the difference with Patrick Beverly, first and foremost. Patrick Beverly gives a lot of talk, gives a lot of chat. Of course, he is a player that does, that does play with a high But why Patrick Be- Beverly irritates me, you know, he's been labelled as an irritant, is because he's also a dirty player, in my opinion. He doesn't just get into the faces of opposition and yaps off. I don't mind a bit of trash talk. To be honest, I'd like to see more trash talk come back, but... He's also just, in my opinion, it seems if in that in the past he has looked to injure certain players. He's made really, really dangerous plays. And I think that's what sets him apart from other players who play hard. He's just, in my opinion, a dirty player. And why he pisses me off so much. It's why Sergio Ramos pisses me off so much. Because it's almost as if they all, always try to take out the star player on the other team through some sort of uh, dirty means. That's why he pisses me off so much. And that's why I liked it so much when Dame clapped back his immature antics when he was just laughing and clapping on the bench. When he's laughing and clapping like that and throwing up gang signs, it just seems like it's incredibly immature because the game was not over at that point. And when you're taking it that like lightly, Dame missing those shots, it kind of it almost would make your team maybe take their foot off the gas because they think, oh, now the game's won now that he's missed these free throws. Um, I just didn't like to see it at all. Like The game was still going on. Um, it wasn't to get just to get into Dame's head. He could have done that by being sarcastic and mouthing off, but he was literally messing around for like two minutes then when he wasn't even on the floor. Like It was just ridiculous. I thought it was really childish. It wasn't getting in Dame's head. It, more likely, it was just pissing him off. So he tried even harder. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it would have a negative impact on his team as well. Because they're just going to be more complacent than they otherwise would be. And it's not just Patrick Beverly. It's this whole team. They're just a bunch of idiots, in my opinion. Uh, you had Lou Williams getting spotted in a club. Uh, Paul George constantly being spotted at bloody strip clubs. You even saw... Kawhi at a strip club, which shows how detrimental an influence these guys are having on Kawhi. Like, Kawhi at a strip club is not something that should be happening. So, although I still have them as my favourites for the championship, this Clippers team, I know I've gone off on a massive tangent on them. Um, the reason why I'm sceptical about them has got nothing to do with their talent. It's their attitude and mentality. It doesn't seem to me that they're taking it seriously enough. They're clowning around too much, and I hope... They sort themselves out by the time the playoffs roll around. 
Now, that Mavericks game is going to be a difficult game because although they haven't looked spectacular in the bubble, they've gone 3-3. Three and three. When you actually delve in deeper into it, um, all of their games have been very, very competitive. They lost against the Rockets, of course, in that thriller, that 153-149 to 149 point game, which is, again, I would recommend everyone who watches at least the highlights of that game. It was uh, such a fun watch. Uh, they lost by two to the Suns. They've beaten the Bucks and the Jazz, so... They've still looked very good, and um, yeah, especially KP, especially, is, seems like he's more and more so grown into his role as the uh, second player for this team. This Mavs game is going to be very tricky, especially because they're actually a game within the Jazz, and the Jazz are to play the Spurs, who I'll go on to later, but what it means is that this Trailblazers game for the Mavericks is a huge game. It might mean they end up playing the Nuggets in the first round of the playoffs as the sixth seed, as opposed to playing the Clippers as the seventh seed. So they will be going all out against the Trailblazers. So that is going to be a huge game. That's actually going to be um, at 11.30 tonight, which is when I'm recording this episode. So by the time this episode is out, if that game may have already happened. Um, so that's going to be a hard, difficult game for the Trailblazers. However, um, their last game um, is considerably easier against the Brooklyn Nets and the Nets have now secured their place in the playoffs as the seventh seed. So they really haven't got much to play for and although they've looked pretty good, I think uh, the Trailblazers will be desperate to win that game and I see them coming out with a win there. The Spurs. Now, the Spurs have by far and away exceeded expectations. I've talked about in another, an earlier podcast which players have stepped up, but you know it's really their young core, and I'm not really going to delve too much into um, which players have exactly shone. I've already discussed that in a previous podcast, so I will check that one out. But when we look at just their remaining two games, so again, at the time of this recording, they're actually in a game against the Rockets, and they're up by six at the end of the first quarter. So I'll probably be catching the second half of that game. Um, So that's a game that I would have thought would have been a very difficult win because, again, that's a huge game for the Rockets as well. So I do actually see them losing that game. And their game, their last game, which might determine whether they make these playoffs, is against the Jazz. And this is huge for both teams. The Jazz need to win this, like I said, to make sure they don't slip to the seventh seed and end up playing the Clippers. They'd much rather play the Nuggets, or either the Nuggets or the Rockets. And again, for the Spurs, this might be make or break. This might be their only opportunity to make the playoffs if they beat this Jazz team. But um, realistically, the only way that the Spurs are actually going to make these playoffs is if they win both of these games against the Rockets and the Jazz. Because... The um, Suns actually have the percentage tiebreaker over the Spurs. So the Spurs need to finish with the best record out of the Suns and the Trailblazers. And hope, of course, the Grizzlies lose both their games as well to have any sort of chance. So the Spurs realistically need to win both games. And I don't think they are capable of doing so. So to wrap things up, because I believe this 8th seed fight is probably the most interesting thing to commentate on as of now. We'll talk about seedings probably in the next episode. Um, by the time, and by that time, the regular season would have actually concluded. I do believe that we will see the Suns 
versus the Trailblazers as the 8th, ninth seed playoff game. And I think the Trailblazers will actually be the 8th seed. So they'll have the upper hand there. And therefore, I see them overcoming this Suns side, despite how good the Suns have looked in the bubble. So that'll wrap things up for this episode. We had a quick look at uh, the last few games for the Raptors and who I think is going to triumph in this battle for the eighth seed in the West. I hope you guys have enjoyed it and next episode we'll be back to our normal format with myself and Kamel.